Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Well, hello there. Welcome to another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. And with me, as always, is my buddy, my co-host and my favorite New York City history buff, Tom Myers. Hello. History buff. I didn't know if you were going to say history nerd. Thank you. Hi, Alicia. (laughs) I am Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys history podcast, and I am just having a blast delving into the Gilded Age with you. So last week on the podcast, we talked about the various roles that the men and women and servants held, you know, during the Gilded Age. And this week, we'll take a closer look at entertaining and etiquette. I'm so fascinated to learn more about this subject. Plus, later on, we'll be talking to Thaisa Famiga, who plays Gladys Russell, as well as the property master of the show, Michael Jortner. But first, Tom, let's recap episode six of The Gilded Age called Heads Have Rolled for Less, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Okay, we have to begin by talking about the tragedy that was revealed at the end of last week's episode of the series, the train derailment. Yes, that was awful. Five men have died. And when this episode begins, George and Bertha Russell, Richard Clay from George's company, and Clara Barton from the Red Cross are at the site viewing the damage. And Tom, I imagine there were many of these train accidents during this time because the railroad was expanding quickly and possibly some shortcuts were being taken. Of course, yeah. The railroad sector was growing so quickly and the public was Unfortunately, getting quite used to reading about derailments and crashes. In fact, remember in the last episode, Richard Clay mentions a recent crash in Spiten Dival in today's Bronx, where the Harlem River meets the Hudson. Oh, yes. I think that was one of the reasons why George decided to donate to the Red Cross. Exactly. Yes. And this really happened on January 13th, 1882, a New York Central and Hudson River Railroad train coming down from Albany packed with state legislators, stalled on the tracks around a bend and was quickly rear-ended by another train. And at least 10 people died in this accident, including State Senator Webster Wagner. And it was front-page news for days. I checked half of the front page of the next day's New York Times was devoted to this crash. Wow. You said that was the New York Central Railroad? Mm Mm-hmm. Vanderbilt's Railroad. And this happened because the trains couldn't really communicate with each other at the time. I mean, one was stalled and the other one couldn't stop in time and hadn't seen him. So so crashes, or in this case here, a derailment, happened all the time. Gosh, and and how about Agnes saying that five dead didn't seem like many? Yeah, that was rough. But it also certainly shows how hardened Agnes is to this kind of news and and probably not just train accidents, you know, but all the other accidents and industrial mishaps that were really everyday occurrences. And I have to say, I'm I'm pleased that the show is letting a bit more reality into the storyline. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it's not just all fancy dinner parties, although we do love those. (laughs) We do. But no, we're actually getting some reminders that living conditions at the time were really hard for most people. Working conditions were dangerous. 
people were exploited. And yeah, you know, there are all kinds of accidents. They were very common. Well, George discovers that this derailment came as the result of metal fatigue and a broken axle, which wasn't new when installed. So to mitigate bad publicity, George writes another big check to the Red Cross, and he and Bertha pose for a photo for the newspaper, which, Tom, did seem a little bit morbid for the Russells to be photographed in front of the crash, Mm -hmm. although I guess George says he, he wants to make sure that people know that they're not hiding. You know, I don't think that they intended to be photographed, at least, you know, until they had been noticed by the photographer who was already there on the scene. Well, George does seem to be genuinely quite grief-stricken, but Bertha is is mainly just worried about what this will do to her entrance into society. Well, I'm sure he's also worried about, you know, what the crash might do to his stock price. Yeah. But maybe he's also genuinely concerned about the victims, too. True. Well, either way, he definitely wants to find out who is responsible. And we hear George ask Clay to see if Pinkerton and his men can get on the case. So Mm -hmm. according to their website, the Pinkerton agency still exists today and does work in risk management. But who was Mr. Pinkerton and what kind of work did his company do? They were private detectives and security guards. Alan Pinkerton was born in Scotland, uh, but moved to the U.S. in the 1840s and started the detective agency that would become the Pinkerton Agency a few years later. So here in the scene, George and Clay are debating about whether or not to hire detectives, in this case, to dig up some dirt or uncover some clues, or, you know, maybe find something that George could use to help clear his own name. Mm, Was this uh, typical for their line of work at the time? Absolutely, yeah. Pinkerton agents did lots of work, in fact, with the railroads, Mm. patrolling trains, hunting down train robbers and thieves. And they also infiltrated organizations like labor unions. They'd been used to help break the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, just a few years before this show takes place. Wow, that's crazy. So the Russells are also expanding their involvement with the Red Cross. They're donating to the organization. And the idea of Bertha joining the board is floated during the committee meeting. So Clara Barton, Marion Brooke and Aurora Fain are all for this idea. But Anne Morris thinks she doesn't have the type of character or reputation needed for the Red Cross. Mrs. Morris. You have suffered a great deal, and I am sorry for it. But I hope you can recognize that this meeting is not the place to address a society squabble. This isn't a society squabble, since Mrs. Russell is not in society. (laughs) What an interesting moment for me to arrive. I would like to remind you that no one in this city has done more real good for my cause. So let's talk about Clara Barton because she's appeared in several episodes of the series now and and as we've discussed, she is a real-life figure. She and a small group started the American Red Cross in 1881, really in Dansville, New York, and Clara Barton led the Red Cross for 23 years. Yes, Miss Barton was very active during the Civil War. She was a nurse on the front lines and she helped run field hospitals And after the war, she lectured about her experiences, which is now, I think, pretty easy for us to imagine, Clara Barton lecturing. Mm -hmm. And while visiting Geneva, Switzerland in 1869, she became acquainted with the Red Cross, the humanitarian organization that had been formed a few years 
earlier to help improve the conditions for wounded soldiers. And they would pass the Geneva Convention? The next year, yes. This was an agreement that spelled out humanitarian rules that must be respected in times of war. And 12 nations and kingdoms signed on to this, but not the United States. So once Clara Barton was back in the U.S., she worked really hard to get the organization officially recognized here, which would, because of her efforts, finally happen in 1881. Meanwhile, as Peggy and Marion leave this Red Cross committee meeting, Marion gets a, a sense of the kind of daily injustice that Peggy has to face. Yeah, Marion suddenly becomes more aware of that when she and Peggy are trying to hail a cab, but the driver refuses when he sees that Peggy will be a passenger. Marion sort of cries after him, you know, showing her outrage, but Peggy just sort of shakes it off and tells Marion, you've just discovered injustice. I've lived with it my whole life. If I spent every day fighting with bigots, I'd never get anything done. Yep. It's just a, another reminder that Peggy and Marion live in completely different worlds. Yeah. And there's something ironic here. You know, Marion is outraged and Peggy is just like, yep, that's my life. Now let me hail mm -hmm. the cab because I'm running late for a meeting. It points out that the racial discrimination really existed everywhere. It was in mm -hmm. the shops and out on the street while trying to hail a cab. Which, of course, is still a problem. Yeah. As we said, yeah, they were just coming out of this meeting for the Red Cross at Aurora Fane's house, which Peggy has been invited to join. Did you notice that Aurora sort of glanced around a little bit nervously to see if any neighbors noticed that Peggy was coming in through the front door? <laughs> I mean, maybe I just... Imagine that, but I, th I think we see a quick nervous look. No, I, I noticed that too. And Aurora didn't look too happy just to see Peggy again. Yeah. But soon Marion goes to visit Mrs. Chamberlain on behalf of the Red Cross, which was another thing Aurora Fane was disapproving of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Marion somehow made an appointment with Mrs. Chamberlain. And, and of course, she doesn't want to be late. That's right. No, she was embarking on a social call, so she had to be punctual. Well, we don't see the actual arrangements being made, but how do you think she would have gone about organizing this? Uh, she would have written or dropped off a calling card requesting a meeting. You know, correspondence of this sort was an art, and it was a, it was a very important part of the day. We see in the very first episode that Agnes is swamped by her letters. She's behind, and it's actually why she brings on Peggy in the first episode to work for her. But given the delicate situation here with Mrs. Chamberlain, I think that probably Marion would have written to her by herself. And everyone seems to have had their own cards, kind of like business cards, mm -hmm. just ready to, to give at the door when they arrive. Yeah, kind of like everybody needs an email account now. You know, if a calling <laughs> card would be a simple card with your name in the center and your address probably printed down in the lower right corner. And there was this long list of rules to the game of social visits, you know, what you could write on your card when requesting a visit. And, and the butler had different ways of responding to your card if you came in person or if you sent it. Celia Tichy in her book, What Would Mrs. Astor Do?, writes, quote, card presented, the caller waits while the maid or butler withdraws, returning to admit the caller into the home, this way, please, or to regrettably inform the caller that the lady or gentleman of the house is, quote, not at home, often a polite phrase meaning not at home to visitors or at the extreme, not at home to you. <laughs> 
but fortunately Mrs. Chamberlain is at home for Marion and over tea in her gorgeous salon, she tells Marion that the rumours about her are true. She did have an affair with her late husband while his wife was still alive Mm -hmm. and later he adopted their biological son, which is the kind of scandal that back then could have ruined lives. Absolutely, yeah. It would be the kind of thing that would be whispered about. And in my research, I came across a fascinating figure in Gilded Age New York named Arabella Huntington. And I'm thinking that Miss Huntington must have been the inspiration for Mrs. Chamberlain. Oh, was she also fabulously wealthy and and shunned by society? Indeed she was. Yes, her ah. name had been Arabella Worsham, and she became the mistress of the incredibly wealthy railroad tycoon Collis Huntington in the early 1870s. Mm. Unfortunately, he was married at the time. The author Greg King writes in his book, A Season of Splendor, that she was, quote, a stunning and tall, dark-haired, dark-eyed woman, a widow with a young son, or at least that is what she declared. The son, born in New York City in 1870, was real enough, though the true identity of his father remains unknown. It was widely whispered that the boy was Huntington's, and indeed, the tycoon later adopted him. Oh, yes, that sounds exactly like Mrs. Chamberlain. I think we should just call Mrs. Chamberlain Arabella from here on out. (laughs) Absolutely. And so in terms of entertaining, when Marion pops by to see Mrs. Chamberlain to to look in, as Mm -hmm. they say, what would be the etiquette for how Mrs. Chamberlain should receive her? I mean, an offer of tea, I imagine? Yes. Well, visits typically happen in the afternoon, so tea time. But... Mm. um, I was I was amazed by how Marion actually goes there in her conversation, bringing up Mrs. Chamberlain being punished in perpetuity by society. I think that that alone might have actually broken some rules about sticking to polite conversation. Yeah, but it does bring them closer. True. And of course, Marion isn't going to admit to Aunt Agnes where she has spent the afternoon. She mentions to Peggy that she'll use the Lennox Library as an alibi. Mm -hmm. They've just been, and as Peggy says, it should be called a museum rather than a library because everything was under glass and not available to read. So can you tell us about this Lennox Library? I did see that it was yet another New York City building designed by our friend Richard Morris Hunt. (laughs) Yes, our friend. It was. And it would have been just about 10 blocks up Fifth Avenue from Aunt Agnes's house. James Lennox was a very rich philanthropist, and he was a serious book collector. He'd run out of room for his collection at his lower Fifth Avenue townhouse. So he organized the Lennox Library in 1870 and hired Richard Morris Hunt to construct a beautiful home for it on Fifth Avenue between 70th and 71st, which opened in 1877. But I take it from their conversation that this wasn't a circulating library like we have today. No, Peggy was right here. This was more of a museum or a rare book collection, but large, with more than 80,000 volumes in it that you couldn't check out, including, as we hear, a Gutenberg Bible, which you really couldn't check out, and also... (laughs) a priceless art collection. This was a place that was intended for scholars to do research. And that was the same with another library, one located downtown, the Astor Library on Lafayette Street. The Astors again. Yes. So they had their own library? Yeah, they had funded one. John Jacob Astor, Caroline's 
husband's grandfather, <laughs> got that, had left $400,000 in his will for the creation of a reference library that would be open to the public. And are either of these libraries still around? Well, here's the best part. The Astor Library and the Lennox Library would be consolidated with money from the estate of Samuel Tilden in the 1890s to form the New York Public Library, which would open mm. its main branch in 1911 on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. I just gave myself chills. <laughs> and can I guess this was uh, designed by, again, our favorite architect? Not Richard Morris Hunt, nope, oh. and not Stanford White. This was designed by Carrere and Hastings, um, another great Beaux-Arts firm. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, another event that we, we have to talk about in this episode is the crazy doll party. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Bertha lets Gladys out of the mm -hmm. house to join Larry at a tea party at Mamie Fisher's house, mm -hmm. mainly because she hears that Carrie Astor will be there. And it's not just any tea party, but it's one where the attendees have to pick a doll and then look after them with food and drink. And in our first episode, we talked about Mamie Fish and her crazy parties. As Carrie Esther says, you know, she gets these wild ideas for her parties, but people pay no attention. That's true, but they still come. Um, Mamie Fish yeah. really did like to make people a bit uncomfortable. Uh, the author Eric Homburger writes of her in his book, Mrs. Astor's New York, quote, Mamie Fish was a hostess with flair and a capacity for the unexpected qualities notably lacking in Mrs. Astor's entertainments. Her wit was long cherished in society. She had a strong domineering personality and prided herself on her mastery of the black arts of social strategy. <laughs> the black arts. Yeah. I mean, I guess she does always seem like she has something up her sleeve. Yeah, and she <laughs> likes to make her guests uncomfortable. What's interesting is that Mamie's husband's family, the Fishes, went back further in old New York than either the Astor's or Caroline's own family, the Skirmerhorns. So Mamie could really get away with making people feel however she wanted. And, you know, a doll party does seem kind of symbolic for Gladys Russell and Carrie Astor in that they have this shared experience of mothers who just want to keep them young. Oh, yeah, true. And who are domineering. And mm. by now we're seeing also quite similar in fact, in the scene, there's a shot at the end of it, really, when Carrie Astor, who's no longer crying into her doll, um, and Gladys shake, right? Their gloved hands shake. And I just, I couldn't <laughs> help think that it was also kind of like a stand-in for Bertha shaking with Caroline Astor. And of course, this new friendship between Carrie and Gladys will be one that Bertha approves of since it gets her a step closer to Mrs. Astor. <laughs> uh, was it just me or do you also think that Gladys and Carrie realize that their mother's obsession with society could be worked to their advantage? Mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps mm -hmm. Carrie more than, more than Gladys because she mentions having Gladys over and then the quadrille. <sighs> What is that? A quadrille is a kind of a formal dance, a, a Gilded Age square dance, really, that it would have been performed <laughs> at balls. And they could be really elaborate. Also a very fancy square dance. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess Bertha is getting closer to Mrs. Astor by making friends with her confidant, Ward McAllister. And she has a big challenge ahead, as Aurora Fane tells her Mr. McAllister wants to have a luncheon at Bertha's house. He said you have made him curious to see your palace on the avenue. Warden McAllister wants me to entertain him in my own home? He does. 
I wonder if he's told Mrs. Astor. I think he will. But whom could I invite with him? I can't include anyone from his own set. I don't know them. Assemble the same group that came here. He enjoyed himself then. Why shouldn't he again? But the service must be English. He uses it to frighten newcomers. Well, it's worked with me. You'll manage. But be sure to make it a success. He won't give you a second chance. Mm. Ward McAllister was, of course, very finicky about lots of things and about all aspects of how a meal should be prepared and served and even eaten. And he wrote about this, actually, in his 1890 book, Society as I Have Found It. Which I know you have a copy right of. Right here. I'm holding it up. Like a, <laughs> was it kind of like a, a rule book? Yeah. Of well, it's kind of a biography. It's kind of a mess, but it's a biography. But at the end, is um, there are a lot of rules. And sometimes it's hard to know, you know, if he's being sincere or if he's just being silly. I mean, check it out. You can find copies of it. You can read it for free on Google Books. Um, But chapter 22 is all about dinners, how to assign guests at dinner, even how to walk into the dining room from the drawing room properly. Like there are rules about that? Oh, Alicia, let me quote from Mr. McAllister. Quote, In going in to dinner, there is but one rule to be observed. The lady of the house, in almost every case, goes in last, all of her guests preceding her, with this exception, that if the President of the United States dines with you, or royalty, he takes in the lady of the house, preceding all of the guests. (laughs) Okay, I will uh, try to keep that in mind the next time the President comes over here for dinner. (laughs) I mean, how practical, really, is that advice? Um, but I I did notice that Bertha in this scene comes in with McAllister after everyone else. Uh, and mm. and he writes about his time eating or visiting Buckingham Palace. He doesn't get to stay for dinner. He writes about how Napoleon dined and, and so on. But there is some practical advice in there, too. Fascinating. I'm going to have to read this. And and clearly he took all these rules of dining very seriously. They were sacred. He writes, quote, a dinner invitation once accepted is a sacred obligation. If you die before the dinner takes place, your executor must attend the dinner. I mean, he adds a little parenthetical that he might be exaggerating a bit, but you get the point. <laughs> If you die, <laughs> so much to remember. And, and there are many other books and manuals. Even cookbooks included rules. Um, one classic is the 1893 book, The Epicurean, which was written by the famous chef Charles Ranhofer of Delmonico's restaurant. He was a Frenchman uh, who had worked for Napoleon III. He's got all kinds of rules in there. Uh, he even includes a chart for how to serve a 14-course meal in two hours and 20 minutes. 14 courses. Yes. How? <laughs> well, it's easy if if each course is exactly 10 minutes long. And, you know, I mean, that's where the footman comes in, to whisk away your plate, even if you're still eating, you know, your, your terrapin. <laughs> he, and he also explains what's on the table centerpiece and what that exactly should look like. And it seems that Bertha was spot on. So there were a lot of lilacs and hyacinths. Exactly. He writes, quote, In the center of the table have a large piece of silverware decorated with plants, ferns, and natural flowers, mingling red and white, scarlet and lilac. And and then he mentions to also set candelabras and lamps. I mean, she nailed it. Yes. And so there's rules for those eating and also many rules for planning a meal. 
Right. And those rules of dining etiquette would have been part of a child's education, you know, with the proper governess and under the watchful eye of their parents, you know, at family dinners. They were being trained to avoid any kind of a breach of etiquette. Well, in this episode, the big issue is that the Russells have an American butler, Mr. Church, and use American service, as opposed to the Van Rines, whose butler, Mr. Bannister, and service is English. So Mrs. Bruce suggests to Bertha that they enlist the help of Mr. Bannister, though Mr. Church insists he can learn how to serve in the English manner, inviting Mr. Bannister across the road to give him a sort of crash course in table settings. What's this? You know what it is, a salad fork. We never lay a fork without a knife or a spoon to partner it. Nor is salad a course on its own. It is eaten with the entree or the remove on salad plates which fit the curve of a larger dish. And what is this? What does it look like, Mr. Bannister? A spoon for the coffee. No teaspoon is ever laid on an English table. If one is needed, it is supplied at the opposite moment. (laughs) I love this odd couple of Church and Bannister. (laughs) And then just after this clip, Bertha offers Bannister $100 to be her butler for this luncheon. Bannister seems chuffed that he's in demand, but Church is uh, not so pleased. I'm sorry, he seems what, that he's not in demand? Chuffed. Chuffed? I think it's English, but uh, but we use it in Australia. It kind of it means like pleased or delighted. He seems <laughs> delighted to be in demand. Yeah, well, no, he's chuffed, and I think that the <laughs> the looks on their faces are priceless. And actually, that expression, Bannister's expression, I, he's so disgusted by the sight of that spoon, that teaspoon. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah, the ultimate insult. Uh, but and still, at the end, they still bow to each other. That's also nice. Well, thank goodness there will be no asparagus served. Uh, Oh, yeah. What was up with that? (laughs) Yes, I don't even want to go there because it sounds like there were so many differences between the American way and the English way. I mean, even down to, like we were saying, the teaspoons. Never without coffee or tea, I suppose, the horror. (laughs) By the way, if our listeners outside of England have never tried an eaten mess, I just want to say I highly recommend it. Yeah, is that the kind of strawberry and cream thing? Kind of like an elaborate strawberry shortcake, sort of? Yes, it's delicious. It's it's kind of like a a pavlova because it's got meringue and cream and strawberries and and it does, like Mr. Church say, kind of look like a mess made by schoolboys. Tastes great, too. Yes. Well, of course, the problem becomes how to get Bannister out of the Van Rhine's house for the meal. As we know, it is his duty to serve it. He's the butler. So he comes up with an elaborate, awkward lie to get out of serving Agnes and Ada their lunch, which gets very convoluted and results in Ada somehow thinking that he's involved with some kind of religious lawyer who doesn't approve of lunch. Uh, but she said, I might just be muddled. That was so funny. And then on the big day of the lunch, Bannister sneaks off across the road and addresses the Russell's line of footmen like a general about to take his soldiers into war. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but even the music score Mm -hmm. at that moment seemed to be like a rousing Civil War battle tune. Mm -hmm. And of course, that leaves poor Jack to deal with the luncheon at the Van Rines, and he is so nervous about it. So nervous. Didn't you just feel 
bad for the poor guy. I mean, yeah. Jack mentions, you know, the banister said to wear gloves while <laughs> serving food, but not wine. And Ada contradicts him. I mean, everybody's confused. Yeah, poor Jack. It also poor Ada because Jack's so nervous that he forgets to serve her wine. <laughs> but at the Russells, their luncheon is going much more smoothly. When Ward McAllister arrives, he notes the English butler, Mr. Bannister, and says, that's a good start. And this luncheon is particularly impressive. There's hyacinths and lilacs and gifts in napkins. <laughs> I thought the fan for Marion was kind of a nice touch mm -hmm. because remember how she noticed Bertha's fan at the Opera House and said she wanted one herself so she could look fascinating. <sighs> but I was trying to figure out what Ward's gift was. I mean, it was very blingy, but do you think it was like a, like a cigarette case or a lighter? Yeah, I thought it was maybe like a gold-plated and monogrammed carrying case for his visiting cards. I might be wrong. Mm. I think that maybe we should ask Michael Jortner in a few minutes because he was in charge of props. Yeah, he will know. And it seems like Bertha did well. She passed Ward's test. Oh, yeah. It's clear to everybody that Bertha and Ward have found something valuable in each other. <laughs> For sure. And Mr. Bannister made sure that the English service was perfect, but there was one major breach in etiquette. During the luncheon at the Van Rhines, Jack delivers Agnes a mysterious letter that lets her know exactly what Bannister was up to. She is immediately furious, and though Ada says, don't do anything you regret, she gets up, she storms across the road. She narrowly misses a carriage. <laughs> and after a quick, like, astonished look at the opulence of the Russell's mansion, she bursts through the doors into the luncheon. Can we persuade you to sit down and join us, Mrs. Van Rijn? I expect we've had luncheon rather earlier than you imagined. You thought we'd still be in the drawing room, didn't you, Aunt? I mustn't interrupt your party. It's so kind of you to look in when I know how busy you are. I should go. Marion was right. I must have misread the clock. Next time, I hope we can persuade you to stay. Heads have rolled for less. A <laughs> classic Agnes line delivered to Mr. Bannister, also the title of the episode. But how about that quick thinking from Marion and Aurora just trying to save the luncheon and also any embarrassment that Agnes may face? Yeah, they certainly tried. But I think that, you know, in the scene, we also get to see a new side of Agnes. She's vulnerable. Maybe for the first time we've seen her vulnerable. She's miscalculated, you know. And she's always right. But here she's, she looks around the room and she feels completely betrayed by nearly all of her closest allies. It's devastating. And I just, I felt terrible for her. Yeah, me too. As Marion says, Agnes was like Custer at Little Bighorn facing annihilation of everything she believes in. Yeah, a little reference to a battle back in 1876. And as we see her, you know, get mad, really mad back at her house, mad enough to storm across 61st Street with her dress dragging in the muddy road, you know, I just, that alone, the dress in the mud, uh, the muddy street, that was painful to watch. I know, there was that close-up of the beautiful dress in the mud, and I was just thinking, who is going to clean that? <laughs> Probably Bridget. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think she does all the cleaning over there. And, and Agnes, you know, she looks so alone when she's standing in their dining room and she's just kind of blinking her eyes and taking it all in. Yeah, it was sad. And then later, as if that wasn't enough, Armstrong 
always the bearer of good news, tells Agnes what she had seen earlier. She had seen Oscar being somehow intimate with the Russell's lady's maid, who we know is Turner. That Armstrong. But we know that Agnes will prevail. Okay, so (laughs) it's time for us to take a quick break, but keep listening to the official Gilded Age podcast. Yes, because up next, Alicia and I will talk to Thaisa Farmiga, who plays Gladys Russell, and the show's property master, Michael Jortner. Stay with us. most successful men in the country with real estate and steel and copper and coal and oil and railroads are the envy of the world and you can't stand up to your wife I suppose you bought him off and if he took it he wasn't worthy of me that's what mother will say don't be too hard on the boy I made it tough for him to refuse I just wish I knew the reason because your mother believes that you have more to come than marriage to a banker in Manhattan. What's wrong with that? Nothing, but it's not special. Father, I'm not special. Why can't she see it? I'm ordinary. I'm just an ordinary person who wants an ordinary life. No, my darling. You are not in the least ordinary. On that point, your mother and I are as one. Oh, that's right. Not in the least ordinary. Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast. I'm Tom Myers with my co-host Alicia Malone, and we are very lucky to have with us two key members of the show, Thaisa Farmiga, who plays Gladys Russell, and Michael Jortner, the property master. Hello. Amazing. Hi. Happy to be here. Hello, everyone. So happy to have you both with us. And Thaisa, let's start by talking about what we hear in that clip. You know, Archie Baldwin was sent away by Gladys's parents in the previous episode because her mom wants a, a different kind of man for Gladys. And we feel for her because it seems so cruel. So what do you think it is that Gladys really wants? You know, Gladys is just craving some semblance of control over her own life. You know, um, she lives in a society where without a husband, she doesn't really have any freedom. So I think what she really wants is a husband so she can gain, um, yeah, the, the, the liberty and the right to be able to go out in the world and go out in society and sort of do as she pleases. It's hard because not only does she live in a society that has so many rules, her mother has so many rules and, and regulations and a death grip over her. And I really feel like Gladys just wants to experience the world. I feel like it's the same... I don't know, it's the same struggle any teenager on the brink of adulthood faces with their parental figures, whoever they may be. They want to form their own opinions and experience the world through their own eyes. Yeah. And we were speaking earlier, Thaisa, that this kind of thing really did happen during the Gilded Age, um, especially, in your case, to young heiresses. For example, Consuelo Vanderbilt in the 1890s, whose very domineering mother, Alva, pretty much forced her to marry the ninth Duke of Marlborough. So did you look into any of the lives of the women who had found themselves in this kind of situation? 
For sure. Um, I know Julian has taken inspiration from the Vanderbilts and their story in Alba and Consuelo. Also, production put together this marvelous sort of dossier or, or history um, research Bible of, of all the information we could possibly need to know about the 1880s. Oh. And, I mean, they had all the information from daily life of manners and, and social etiquette to railroad industry to the amount of manure that would be covering the street to really sort of give you a, a, an all sense, <laughs> all five sense um, realization of what it would be like at that time. So, yeah, I did a bit of wow. research into, into Consuelo and, and Alva and their relationship, but you know, I, I think at the end of the day, Julian does such a great job creating these characters and bringing them to life on the page and, and their relationships. You know, even though you're set in this very big, beautiful, decadent world, yeah, just the the, the charactery moments is is so perfect. And I don't think I had to, I didn't have to pretend too hard. I know what it's like to, to want to be out mm-hmm. of your mother's grasp and, yeah, have independence. And I think I just sort of leaned into what 15-year-old Thaisa felt like. But she isn't 15, right? No, Gladys is supposed to be 17 years old, but she's a bit young for her age in the sense that, you know, most girls approaching 17, 18 have already debuted and they've they've come out in society. Mm -hmm. And speaking of relationships, you know, Gladys has different relationships with her mother and her father. We just heard in that clip that she is quite comfortable in telling her father off, but she doesn't feel the same to her mother. But how did you go about creating Gladys in terms of showing both the soft side of her and also the determined side? Um, you know, Gladys is Bertha's daughter. So even though she can't really stand up to her mother as much, she doesn't have, I don't know, it's not the strength, not the determined. She doesn't have the gall to do it uh, at this current moment. Um, she definitely has Bertha's blood in her and she's going to fight for for what she wants. It just might take her a little bit of time to get there. You know, Gladys is very much a daddy's girl and, and you see it over the course of the season. Bertha sort of sees Gladys as this doll that she has to dress up and manipulate and, and, and sort of move her in the way that she wants her to be and fit her into the molds that she wants, whereas George sees her daughter, sees his daughter for who she is and and the fact that she's a human. Yeah, there's a line in in this episode that I love where, uh, what is it, Bertha's like, don't be, she's telling George to not be too soft and and, and George's like, no one could ever, no one could ever accuse you of that. And it's so, it's such yeah. a good moment because it's true. But, you know, at the same time, Bertha's just coming from a place of of love and sacrifice. It's just sort of your perspective on it. It's interesting also that you just said dressed up like a doll because we're going to be talking about dolls a little <laughs> bit later. And, There's and, lots of dolls in this episode. <laughs> oh, yes. A lot of dolls, which brings us to you, Michael. Um, we, want, <laughs> we wanted to talk about some of the incredible props that we see in this episode. Uh, but before we delve too deeply into your job, I, I just wonder if you could give our listeners kind of an outline of your role. How would you describe a property master? I feel like, for me at least, my job is to interpret the script as I read it and sort of build the world that the story takes place in, offer ideas and solutions, give people a visual representation of what everything would look like, what everything would be, how everything works and functions and try to sort of find items and props in the time period that move Mm -hmm. everything along and help tell the story and also help the actors feel more comfortable getting into the world, you know, showing them what, it would be what something would be like physically and put it in their hands and let them see. I know we did a lot of writing mm-hmm. lessons with everyone with uh, pens just to sh- give them a sense of what it would, how long it would take to write a letter at this time. And what would you say is the difference between props and set dressing? Uh, I think for props sort of represents to me anything that kind of functions on camera and is used by a, by a, actor or actress on camera. So 
if you have to pick something up or read a book or write a letter or eat something or cook something, <laughs> all of those elements <laughs> become a prop. And there's a lot of, we do have a lot of crossover with the costume department, the set deck department, and most departments in the show. We work with a lot of people and get a lot of uh, last minute sort of requests and curveballs that we have to uh, yeah, I'm sure. deal with. <laughs> Uh, so much attention was paid to things that the camera may never even see, right? But that might actually help the actors get into character. How has that kind of attention to detail helped you become Gladys Russell? I mean, I don't think I could have portrayed Gladys without, one, the beautiful sets, the beautiful costumes, and, and, and just the entire world that the whole crew had, had created for us, for the actors to live in. Obviously, you learn your lines and, and you get to set, and it's not until they put my wig on, I step into my corset, they, or not step in, they wrap me in my corset, they pull it tight, step into the, like the seven layers of my gowns. It's almost like walking through a veil, you know what I mean? You get dressed and you, and you step through the front mm -hmm. doors of, of the Russell house and you're just transported. And um, for one, posture such an important thing back then, you know what I mean? And, and the corset and the outfits inherently help with that. Um, there's also like tiny little details, like one of my favorite outfits coming up is this is this Newport tennis outfit that Gladys wears. And there's this little, um, mm -hmm. it's a little skirt holder. So it's this little metal clip that goes and kind of hangs from your, hangs from your waist and, and it gets clipped up and pulls your, pulls your skirt up so you can run around. And mm. I don't know, it's just like a funny, it's a funny invention that I would never think to, to, to need or use, but I was my favorite prop of the day. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many little details like that, that, you know, us history nerds really look out for. So Michael, how hard is it to source props for a show like this? You know, for a period drama, how do you go about finding or recreating specific time period props? Well, you know, finding props is challenging, but finding props in the condition that you want them for, for a show where you're representing something that's brand new or relatively new, it becomes a little challenging. But we end up buying a large amount of things just as reference. Plus, in the amount of money we have, we have to sort of figure out what will work well as it is, what we need to recreate. But there's a lot of uh, time and effort that goes into I've had I had shoppers in the UK. I had shoppers in the southeast, southwest that were sending us things, sending us pictures. We had people, you know, restoring things all across the country. And we had our crew during prep and our shop restoring tons of things daily you know wow and is it Polishing. is it a lot of um shopping in antique shops or is it more uh prop houses it's mostly antique shops for that because we feel like we never really know what something what's going to happen to something in a scene and how you know you don't want to sort of be beholden to a, renting an item that you feel is super precious so it's best mm -hmm. to buy it and then you have it and then you just sort of added to the catalog of things that can be used throughout the show. And so we just went out and spent a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> shopping uh, antiques and antiques, a lot of uh, online shopping. And you just talk to people on the phone and find the person that specializes in this one thing and you call them up and then they know somebody that specializes in something else. And before you know it, you're, you know, building hundred parasols. And wow. You know, 200 walking sticks. Oh my gosh. It sounds yeah. fun, but also a lot of work. And I know one prop that you specifically had to create for the show was Mrs. Chamberlain's carved wooden box. Can you tell oh, yes. us about that one? 
So that box, actually, it was interesting because we were kind of figuring out what that could be because the artist that in the script was described, Gibbons, he made sort of wood carved reliefs that were mostly on the sides of buildings and large scale items. So we were sort of trying to find something in a wooden carved box or if we were going to make something, what that would be. And we ended up finding this carved box that actually had an inscription on the bottom that kind of read Grinling Gibbons on it. So we we thought, hmm, is this possible that this is something that he might have done for somebody? But we bought an antique. They loved it. And Julian was very happy with it. And we just polished it up. And then we built the box that it goes into, that decorative box, which I think probably cost maybe three times the amount of the box that went in it, <laughs> the real box. <laughs> but it worked out well. It was fun. But it was impressive. It was impressive. And when when Marion took it out and Agnes looked at her, you know, like, who gave you that? <laughs> you know, it, it served its purpose. It served its purpose. Uh, in, in in today's episode that we're talking about, uh, episode six, we Alicia and I were making a list of the notable props that we saw. And it is quite a list. Um, Bertha Russell hosts Ward McAllister in one of the big scenes for lunch, obviously. And when we finally get into the dining room and look at the table, it is quite a sight. There are crystal candelabras. Uh, it's packed with hyacinth and lilacs. They're porcelain figurines. And then on top of that, you've got wrapped gifts and all the food. Um, could you just tell us kind of briefly what went into that kind of a scene? Well, luckily, all the table setting and decoration, decorative elements was set deck department. So I didn't have to worry about all that. <laughs> but we did have to create the wrap gifts, which we were kind of trying to figure out what what would be given as a gift, first of all, and what could it be that we could make more special than what we've already been seeing people have. So we decided on, you know, some cigarette cases for the men, of which the one that we made for Ward, we actually designed from scratch. We bought some sterling silver cases, but we enameled them and did all decorative elements. And then we sort of went around and bought more items to embellish. And I have an amazing jeweler that helped in doing that work with me and just started showing different examples to Julian. And he was happy with everything that we had. And then for the women, we made jeweled uh, frames for the fans, for the hand fans. So we took the hand fans, we traced them out, and my jeweler made silver plates to go over the sides that we put stones in, and we sort of made decorative fans. And then we figured out an elaborate napkin wrap <laughs> for the presents. <laughs> I was genuinely impressed with how like perfectly kind of unwrapped and there was a present. I forgot there was even a present in it and I watched it. I was like, yeah. that's so cool. Why didn't I get a cigarette case? Not that I smoked cigarettes, but still. Especially when you had to wrap each present a hundred times and then unwrap it. Oh, yeah. Rewrap it again. Yeah. Over the course of the day in filming, yeah. Yeah, well. Oh Taisa, you didn't even get to go to that meal, did you? I didn't even get to go to that meal. I was like salivating no. watching on my TV the other day. I was like, oh. I mean, the food the food in general was, was incredible. Yeah. Obviously, the, the Russells are very wealthy family and and they've got their french chef which they love to to brag about um but the food tastes as amazing as it looks yeah we're gonna say you know so we spoke to sally richardson whitfield about doing those dining scenes and she brought up a thought that i i hadn't considered before which was not only is it difficult in terms of continuity but it's difficult in terms of getting the etiquette right so what is it like for you as an actress to film those dining scenes 
Um, I mean, I'm a perfectionist, so I love it. It makes me feel so good when I get to, when I, when I, <laughs> I have the rules, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I also, so I, I, I love continuity. Um, so those long dinner scenes were fun for me, especially if Gladys didn't have too many lines. Cause I just, you know, I got to remember, okay, grab my wine glass by the stem. Okay. This fork is for this. I mean, I have to be honest. There were times where I, there were times where I was just like, I was exhausted and I was just so happy eating all the desserts in front of me that I had to yell out to Michael and be like, Michael, which, which, which damn spoon am I supposed to be using? <laughs> cause you forget it's hard at the end of the day. You know what I mean? There's so many little details, but it was also interesting because Julian Fellows is, you know, we had all the COVID protocols, so sometimes he wasn't on set, but he was always, um, when we were filming, he was always paying attention and monitoring, and um, he would call in sometimes with a note, and usually it was like, no, fork in the other hand, or, or, or you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a technical, like, etiquette note, which was so funny. Yeah, you yes. mentioned the rule book, but did you have to do any other kind of classes or, oh, or research yeah. about etiquette specifically? Well, actually, um, we were fortunate because HBO had historians and professors Erica Dunbar and Helen Vate give sort of um, these lectures to the whole Gilded Age cast um, about the etiquette and history and, and, and just that time period. You know, you had the whole Gilded Age cast sort of sitting at these tiny little school desks taking notes all together. You know, like one class was uh, gender and, and race history with Erica Dunbar. And then it goes to sort of like food and nutrition and which with Professor Vate, which would always be going hand in hand with the, the food etiquette and things like that. I mean, one of the one of the things that I thought was the weirdest, because I love eating, I love <laughs> expressing my pleasure and joy when someone cooks me a, a good meal and, and being grateful and expressing that. Well, at that time period, they sort of associate mm -hmm. eating as with man's most animalistic behavior. So it was rude to ever say, wow, the food is so good, or oh, this is so tasty. You can't express that. Uh -huh. And that's weird. I mean, mm -hmm. who doesn't, like, if you, like, you bite into, like, a warm croissant, don't you just want to go, mm. Is that, mm. Yeah. <laughs> and you couldn't do that. So it's those sort of things of, like, you know, I don't know, eating some of the meringues and stuff like that. I have such a sweet tooth and not being like, <gasps> you couldn't be happy. You had to just be slow and chew slowly and all your movements <laughs> had to be very particular. You had to hold it back. Yes. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, that's very much, very much 1880s is, is restraint, especially for the women, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I imagine the corsets help in, in restricting what you could actually eat. <laughs> For sure. I have to say, though, I learned I learned a trick after my first wardrobe fitting before I before I went in or for the first one I was traveling and I, I got right off an airplane and then I didn't eat. So I learned before going into fitting, eat a burrito, go and eat like a pint of ice cream. Make sure you eat. Your stomach is full. So when they fit you for the corset, when you're getting those dinner scenes, you got room to enjoy. It's clever. <laughs> Um, another scene from this episode that's particularly intriguing in its use of props, Michael, is the doll party oh my God. Uh, that the that the eccentric Mamie Fish throws. Taisa, you look kind of bemused by it. Um, at one point, you're actually sitting with a doll on your lap <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, but Michael, where did you find all of those dolls? Were they were they antiques? Did you make any of those? Strangely enough. There is a large antique collection of doll tea sets and doll okay. food that people have made for, you know, hundreds, hundreds of years. The dolls, mm -hmm. there's a lot, we bought a lot of dolls that were period, that were antiques. We had to re do some of them because they were, some of them were falling apart. And then we found a, whole, a decent amount of reproduction dolls that we were able to sort of take pieces from one and the other and assemble our dolls from. And then we bought a lot of different tea sets. And luckily our food stylist, who was amazing, Colin, he 
made doll sized versions of a lot of the food. So, <laughs> so he bought really tiny like doll molds for people who wanted to make food for their dolls. Mm-hmm. And we made real food for the dolls based <laughs> with those molds, as well as fake food that we had bought for various things. But we did a lot. There was a lot of edible doll sized food there. How, how many dolls were there? Do you do you know? Or is there? A, I feel like everywhere I turned, there was a doll staring at me. It was a little unnerving at times, to I, be honest. Yeah, I think we had. I don't think we used all the dolls that we had, but I think there might have been like thirty or forty dolls. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the doll, the doll tea party was, 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 was quite fabulous at times. It was, you know, the dolls themselves were, were a bit unnerving. I feel like some of them had eyes that felt like they followed you. Some of them were sort of like just glazed and staring off. I mean, to be honest, when I first walked in, I had to look around. I was like, if I wasn't in my Gladys outfit and, and the whole period piece, I'd be like, this feels like a setup on a, for like an episode of American Horror Story with all the, all, yeah. all the dolls staring at me. But then I remembered where I was. Um, but I think it was, it, was, it was so perfectly odd. You know, Mrs. Fish is a unique spirit in, in that world. And the doll tea party surely showcases that. Yeah. Where was that shot? Was that actually in a home? That was in Newport, no? Wasn't that my That was in Newport, yeah. Yeah, that was one yeah. of the homes in Newport that we used for a number of different locations. But it was in the in the drawing room of this. I forget the name of the home. It was the one that had that large tree mural going through the entire yeah. building. It's just beautiful. Beautiful room. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because Gladys had to fight to even be allowed to go to the tea party, but it ends up being a rather fortuitous gathering for many. Really, with Gladys getting the chance to meet Carrie Astor. And the two bond over having mothers who like to take control of their love lives. Let's take a listen. The fact is, I have a very difficult mother. Well, I know what that's like. Your mother could not possibly be as difficult as mine. No. My mother keeps me under house arrest. I'm allowed no friends. God forbid I should speak to a man. Why has she let you come here? My brother persuaded her. But she'll regret it, and I'll pay. Shall I come and visit you? I could bring you a cake with a file in it. <laughs> What's your quarrel about? What do you think? A man, of course, who's not good enough for you. So she says, but he is. We are really going to have to shake on that. <laughs> and they do. They shake hands and become fast friends with Carrie Astor's suggestion that they dance a quadrille, uh, therefore allowing them to get close to boys, and Bertha agrees to host the ball, because it would be a way to get Mrs. Astor to visit her. Thaisa, what do you think this friendship means for Gladys, this friendship with Carrie? I think at this point in life, Gladys is just looking for a human connection. She gets a bit of it in the beginning of the the season with Marion Brooke and, and sort of meeting her and, and finding a friendly a friendly person in, in her. And but this is the first time that she has someone that she can properly relate to. She obviously has her brother Larry, who he wants to do his own thing, and they they bond over the fact that they have different expectations for their own life and their parents have for them. But I think to find a young woman who's sort of just a few steps ahead of where Gladys is. I believe Carrie just recent, uh, Carrie Astor just recently came out or mm-hmm. debuted into society. So I think to have that role model um, means the world to her. I think she's just happy to have someone who looks at her like an equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, it's amazing when you consider Thaisa this incredible cast. Can you tell us about working with Carrie Coon and Morgan Spector as your parents? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I feel so fortunate. It made, honestly, it made, my scenes with Carrie and, and Morgan um, were quite easy on my end because they have such beautiful chemistry and they're so um, 
they're just so fabulous as as actors and as people that as soon as you're in and as soon as they're doing their dialogue, you're just sucked in. So Gladys is just watching. I'm just feeling. I mean, Carrie is... <laughs> Oh God, I can't sm I can't not <laughs> smile when I say Carrie Coon's name because she just brings me such joy. Um, she, on set, I mean like she would always, <laughs> the way she shows love is if she's picking on you. So if you're not getting, if you're not getting teased, if you're not getting poked at, if you're not like verbally, you know what I mean? If she's not picking on you, then you know, maybe, maybe yeah. you're not one of her favorites. Or at least that's what I like to hold on to say, I am her favorite. Um, so it was always a fun transition between going between Gladys and Thaisa because Carrie is always just cracking jokes and she had the whole crew laughing and just sort of, um, yeah, you know, she's being unapologetically herself while also being a phenomenal actress. Oh, she's so wonderful in this role. And it's so interesting now to watch the episodes of the series, knowing a little bit more about where each of the scenes were filmed because they weren't all necessarily filmed within the one location, which I imagine that must have been tough for continuity. We were talking about that with Laurie Pitkus. Yeah. I, I remember saying, wait, so when you're leaving the Van Ryan Is house, that's a set real? inside, and then you're on the back lot, and then you go in the front door, but then if you walk into the ballroom, that's yeah. going to be <laughs> up at the breakers in but Newport. I mean, how did you keep that straight in your head? I don't know. You just do it. They pay you. You don't have a choice. You don't want to be that. You don't want to be the odd one out who's like, wait, what am I doing here? No, I'll also say that production and Michael Angler was great about this too. And there's definitely scenes that we filmed early on, say in October, and we're walking out a door and then we're walking, you know, we're not filming it till May, six months later, walking in a different door and it's finishing that scene. Michael is really good at um, sort of giving us playback to to watch the moment before, which which helps get in the, the mindset and remember what you're supposed to do. Wow, and you have to make sure that you still fit into the corset, too, yeah. seven months oh, later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Over COVID, too. We were filming uh, during, you know, twenty end of 2020, oh beginning of 2021. I ate a yes. lot of ice cream, a lot of donuts, you guys. you got to let yeah. yourself live a little bit. <laughs> uh, Michael, uh, you were mentioning earlier about etiquette lessons, about um, teaching people correspondence, writing letters, and that kind of thing. There are a lot of letters delivered in this particular episode. Uh, there's yes. a letter to Bannister. <laughs> Uh, there's one to Agnes by somebody, some anonymous source delivered on a silver tray. George is holding a letter from Clay at the end. We've been talking about etiquette in how to write messages and such and calling cards in today's show. Did you have to study that too and teach all of that to the cast? How did that work? We studied etiquette. We learned the proper you know, way to write a letter, the proper way that you would address a letter, the proper way that you would receive a letter. Uh, Julian was very helpful. We basically, all the letters that were in the show were were written by my department and Julian would edit and we would write a letter. And then we had a calligrapher that would write the letter and she developed different wow. handwritings for different characters. So they were, each character would have their own. Yeah. Detail. <laughs> and then detail. we had, you know, stationary made for certain characters with, uh, they had their uh, monograms on them. So we basically had a whole letter production for the show, yeah. which was for a piece of paper. Piece of it's paper. insane to think about how much time and how many yes. conversations have to happen. For mm -hmm. Yes. And oh even God. when you can't, you can't read what it says necessarily on camera. Yes. It's the same with all the newspapers, you know, in this episode, we see like Ada, Agnes, Marion reading the New York times, the New York tribune and the daily graphic. And so I imagine a lot of work goes into recreating those newspapers. Is is it real text or is it just gobbledygook? 
Well, luckily, <laughs> the newspaper write text on those newspapers at that time was incredibly small. So, <laughs> and there were no pictures <laughs> for, mo- for the most part. So we right. did purchase actual newspapers from different of the different publications from the time period, maybe a couple for each month. And then we went and reprinted, you know, enough of them to sort of cover ourselves. And then we would find a spot to insert an article that we were going to feature and do a close-up of or someone was going to be reading. So that text was written as an article or something that we found doing research. And so we were able to sort of put articles in that were needed to be there. And then the rest of it was kind of, you know, whatever we moved around. But the daily graphic, we had to take that photograph and then Mm. remake it the way a photograph would have been, you know, dot printed at that time Mm -hmm. with a process so that we could create that image for the scene. Wow. That's a really cool scene, too, because you've got them at the crash and then you've got an antique camera on on set, too, taking the photo for the daily graphic, which goes to Agnes reading that article and seeing that picture. Yes. That was a that was a fun day that the crash crash that day. <laughs> and where was that? That was in Chappaqua, New York. It was mm-hmm. funny because it was on at this base of this hill, which there was a sort of a Girl Scout clubhouse at the top of the hill from that we used for the tavern that Ol- that uh, Oliver was in later on. So we sort of had mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so we went from doing a train crash to like a nighttime tavern scene. (laughs) Right, from a different episode. From a different episode, oh yes. That was the other thing. Even with all the scenes that we shot, we would jump from doing, you know, a meal scene to a scene here to then all of a sudden another meal scene to scene up in the library, back to back to back. So it's sort of, it's a lot of uh, changing things around. Yeah, I think we sort of block, we block shot like one to five and five to ten. So, you know, you could be filming episode one and episode five in the same, like, you know, within an hour. (laughs) So, Michael, what would you say were the most challenging scenes in terms of your job? I think the most challenging scenes were the food scenes that took place in the Russell House kitchen, Mm. which were, uh, you know, at the Kitchen of the Elms, Mm -hmm. where we would... In, In Newport. In Newport. In a, we, the kitchen itself had a, was a museum piece, so there was, it was a non-working large stove, and we had built our own kitchen into one of the storerooms in the back. So we were cooking our food and preparing everything through a couple of doors, and then we would bring everything in, set the, all the sideboards and set the tables for all the housemaids to be working and the cook to, chef to be working, and then we would take it away and bring in a whole new batch of things for the next scene. And we basically oh. shot all those scenes over the course of maybe seven or eight days for every scene that takes place at that location in the show. Wow. So it was over the the whole season, Yeah, and like back to back to back. So we did like three or four scenes a day with completely different setup in the kitchen being cooked. Wow. You know. And the food for the, for the Van Ryan house, was that actually cooked in that set? It it was. On that set? We cooked it. We had a kitchen set up in the stage where that set took place and a kitchen set up in the stage where the kitchen set was. So we would Mm -hmm. cook the food, show them making it in the kitchen, and then we'd remake it again the next day when it had to be served or whenever a week later, two weeks later, when we shot in the dining dining room sink. Yes. You're in different rooms. Those were shot on different days. Yes. Yes. We, We had a food tray that went from the Van Ryan kitchen on one stage to the Van Ryan dining, dining room steps on the other stage 
to the bedroom in Newport <laughs> that like the one thing spanned the entire show. <laughs> yes. Well, Thaisa Farmiga and Michael Jordaner, it's been wonderful having you as guests at our little tea party. You've been absolute dolls. Sorry. <laughs> Thank oh, you. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank I you. appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Tom, that was such a fascinating interview. I mean, I loved hearing from Michael Jotner about all those props and, and also Tysa Farmiga, the real Gladys Russell. But, you know, Michael mentioned where the doll party was shot, which was at a place in Newport with a tree mural. Do you know where exactly that was? Well, we did look that up. That was at the Chateau sur Mer, um, a, a great a great home that was built actually in the 1850s, but would be renovated by our favorite architect, Alicia. Richard Morris Hunt. There he is. Ding, ding, Thanks. ding. <laughs> so glad we got one more Richard Morris Hunt reference in the show. <laughs> and we do hope that you will join us again for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, because next week we have more interviews with the cast and crew. And our subject will be American art and innovation. So we will be talking more about architecture. And also, Tom, for the first time, we'll be talking about electricity. It'll be electric. Oh, good. So don't forget to watch new episodes of The Gilded Age airing Mondays on HBO and HBO Max. And then tune into our next podcast. See you soon. Bye. Bye.